Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune and this week's episode is John of Gaunt, part three. Welcome back. I hope you all enjoyed part two. It only covered nine years from 1368 to 1377. But as I'm sure you noticed, it was a very busy nine years. This isn't to say the next 12 years of John of Gaunt's life won't be as busy, but some will be covered in his younger brother's episodes, especially Thomas of Woodstock's episode. Yes, I'm giving Thomas and Edmund each their own episodes. You'll find out why soon. After his father's death, John of Gaunt should have been the leading man of the kingdom. The king, Richard II, was a child. John of Gaunt would fulfill his promise to his brother and organize his nephew's coronation. While only a child, Edward III's will outlined that Richard II was not to have a regent. Edward III was worried that Gaunt's lack of popularity would destabilize the kingdom and that his other sons were not up for the task. Instead, Richard II would be guided by continual councils, but would sign his own documents. Richard's first council was made up of nine members, none of whom were related to him. These men had been supporters of the Black Prince and were considered wise choices. John of Gaunt, Edmund of Langley, and Thomas of Woodstock were all still involved in their nephew's life. John of Gaunt and the young king's mother, Joan of Kent, were on good terms, and her influence over Richard would last until her death, even if it wasn't always strong. As Richard II aged, he would begin to be influenced by his friends, who would become his unofficial counselors. Two of these men, Simon de Burley and Robert de Vere, were particularly close to the king. While Richard II was popular at this time, mainly due to being the son of the beloved Black Prince, his friends and the council became unpopular with the populace, especially in London. By the 1380s, Richard II was treated as though he were in his majority, even though he was only 13 years old. He was seen as the heir to his great father and the great hope for England. In 1378, John of Gaunt was out of England and not able to influence anything in his nephew's government. He was on his final military campaign in France. His goal was to take Saint-Malo, a part of the Breton area of northwest France. 
John of Gaunt's story is one that, in theory at least, should be as celebrated as his oldest brother's. He used the brilliant tactics he had learned from the Black Prince. He inspired just as much loyalty in his men. But he was 10 to 15 years too late. He wasn't fighting the military of John II of France. He was fighting the legal mind of Charles V. Charles V was no coward, just a man who knew where his strengths were. Charles would protect his people by hiding them and their supplies behind walls. He didn't need to risk their lives for his military victories. He used Fabian tactics the way they were meant to be used. Charles V is often an overlooked king, which is sad. For John of Gaunt, Charles V's self-awareness made his life much harder than his brothers had been fighting against a king who lived by the rules of chivalry and warfare. Charles V had prepared well for this potential invasion, and John of Gaunt's trip was a failure. Charles V would die in 1380 and be succeeded by his oldest son. Also, Charles is Charles VI. But John of Gaunt and England, as we shall see, would be a bit too distracted to take advantage of the change in leadership. Throughout 1379, 80, and 81, John of Gaunt spent a great deal of time in or around the Scottish border <laughs> negotiating a truce with the Scottish king, Robert II, and working towards a long-term treaty. 1381 also saw the marriage of John's oldest son and heir, Henry Bolingbroke, to Mary de Bowen. The bride was only 12, so the marriage wouldn't be consummated for years. Mary was the sister-in-law of Thomas of Woodstock, Gaunt's youngest brother. While their brother Edmund would get to go to Portugal to aid the Portuguese against the Castilians, John of Gaunt would head to Scotland to continue his negotiations. His May 1381 trip to the border would likely save his life. Sadly, his London property and many people would not be so lucky. Over the summer of 1381, the event we now call the Peasants' Revolt occurred. The poorest in London, and Kent, and Essex, rose up to protest an incredibly harsh poll tax. This poll tax was the third such tax in less than three years. It, like the two previous taxes, was regressive and disproportionately affected the poor. Led by Walt Tyler, who would not make it out of this revolt alive, the peasants of the southeast poured into the city of London, demanding major social changes, including reduced taxation and an end to serfdom. They also asked for the king's, quote, wicked advisors, end quote, to be removed. Key among these, of course, was John of Gaunt. Wicked advisors is one of my favorite phrases used throughout the Plantagenet and even parts of the Tudor era. In Richard II's case, blaming his wicked advisors allowed the rebels to not blame their beloved king and to place his uncle under suspicion. The rebels were able to breach parts of the Tower of London. Richard was, after some work, able to get the rebels under control. During the revolt, John of Gaunt had been safe near the Scottish border. One of the few times a royal from either side could say this and Gaunt's son, Henry Bolingbroke, was safe hiding in a cupboard when the rebels broke into the portion of the tower that he was in. There was one major death that would impact John of Gaunt greatly. Simon Sudbury, 
the Archbishop of Canterbury, was brutally beheaded. Sudbury had been a supporter of Gaunt since being appointed Archbishop. He was succeeded by William Courtney, who was a longtime opponent of Gaunt, having regularly spoken out against John Wycliffe. John of Gaunt also lost something he loved greatly during the revolts, his London palace, the Savoy. He had inherited this property through his sister-in-law, Maud of Lancaster, and had made extensive updates and repairs. It was meant to be one of the most beautiful palaces in the city. The rebels destroyed it when gunpowder was accidentally thrown onto a bonfire in its great hall. The barrel had been mistaken for a barrel of wine. There were also a great number of documents destroyed during the revolt. This is painful for historians and history podcasters. Please don't burn books and records and riots. Thanks. While things did calm in the capital, it was still a trying time. John of Gaunt learned of the revolt while he was in Scotland. His negotiations had gone well, and Robert II and he had signed a truce. While the Scots were only partially aware of what was going on, John of Gaunt was honest with them at the time of signing, telling them that he did not know where he stood with regards to the rebels' demands or what his nephew's plans for him were. The Scots could easily have held him hostage and offered him to the highest bidder. Gaunt had heard that 10,000 men were moving north to attack him. He received no word from his nephew and had no idea where he stood. Gaunt was lucky. The Scottish treated him well and allowed him to leave with his men. He headed south, intent on reaching his stronghold of Pontefract Castle. But he was stopped well north of it by Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland. Percy had previously been one of Gaunt's allies and he should have stayed Gaunt's allies. Percy was a first cousin of Gaunt's first wife, Blanche. But he seems to have hoped to win favor with those who stood against Gaunt in court. He, through two retainers, told Gaunt that he wasn't to go any further south and denied him entrance to Pontefract. In reasonable fear, Gaunt returned north to Scotland. He was met by three of the most powerful earls of the kingdom, and placed under their protection. He was well treated and able to bring funds and supplies for himself north. The lack of certainty about his position within his nephew's kingdom must have been trying. His wife Constance had fled through the night for safety to one of his other castles, bringing their daughter and one of his other daughters with her. These events also led to one other major change in John's life. It appears that he felt the calls for his death were a sign that God had turned against him. He decided he was being punished for his longtime affair with Catherine Swinford. Their youngest child was still a toddler, and they were still very much in love with each other from all accounts. But he decided to end their relationship on religious grounds. While they were no longer romantically involved, it does appear that he still took care of her and their children financially. His records show regular payments to her and the delivery of gifts. Word finally reached John of Gaunt that his nephew, the king, would see him return to London safely. Richard II even sent Henry Percy to escort his uncle. Percy was not well pleased, but Richard, in a 
rare show of understanding, seemed to think it would be good for Percy to eat a bit of crow. Richard II's treatment of his uncle, while Gaunt was in Scotland, though, is rather shocking. Gaunt had shown nothing but loyalty to his nephew. He had been negotiating on Richard's behalf. His property had been destroyed, his life had been threatened, his children and his wife were terrified. He'd likely only survived due to the kindness of the Scots. This was no way to treat a loyal family member. While John of Gaunt remained loyal, he and Richard II did not have a positive relationship after this incident. Gaunt was always ready to serve his king, though. In 1382, he was sent to meet Anne of Bohemia, Richard II's betrothed. The couple was married not long after her arrival in London. Richard II had paid a great deal as a dowry for the young woman, and had gained little in return. While Anne would be a popular queen, the decision to spend so much to marry her was perceived negatively by the populace reeling from unfair taxes. Anne brought a retinue with her from Bohemia, modern-day Czech Republic, including a lady-in-waiting, Agnes de Lance Krona, who will come into our story soon. May of 1384 saw one of Richard II's early brushes with tyranny. While the Salisbury Parliament was in session, Richard threatened to execute his uncle after John of Gaunt was accused of plotting to usurp the throne by a seemingly unstable friar. This plot was fabricated, but it's understandable to be mad that someone's trying to take your rightful throne. However, multiple people present for the threats pointed out that executing John of Gaunt was unjust without a trial. Thomas of Woodstock, John of Gaunt's brother and Richard's uncle, did not take his nephew's threat lightly and promised to kill anyone who claimed Gaunt was a traitor. Thomas seemed to be more ready than either of his surviving brothers to speak out against their nephew, and he was very protective of his family, especially his oldest surviving brother. The friar who accused Gaunt, John Latimer, was interrogated by Richard II's older half-brother, John Holland, Joan of Kent's second son from an earlier marriage. See the Edward III special episode to learn more about Joan of Kent's earlier marriage. Somehow, Latimer died in Holland's custody, possibly killed by Holland out of loyalty to Gaunt. John of Gaunt was able to reason with his nephew and convince him that he was, as always, loyal. It's like a broken record. Sadly for Gaunt, this wouldn't be the last time he felt his life threatened by his nephew. Not long after this incident, rumors began to circulate that Richard II's friends were planning to assassinate Gaunt. Richard denied the plot, but Gaunt, while still loyal, didn't seem as trusting towards his nephew. And who can blame him? John of Gaunt was still hoping for a campaign in Spain, and in 1386, he would finally get his chance. In August of 1385, Portuguese forces defeated Castilian forces at the Battle of Aljubarrota. I'm sorry, I can't roll my R's very well. The Portuguese were led by John, the first of Portugal. The Castilians were led by John, the first of Castile. Yeah, there are about to be a lot of Johns, so I'll try to make it easy to keep track of whom I'm talking about. 
John of Portugal was the illegitimate son of Peter I of Portugal and the half-brother of the most recent king of Portugal, Ferdinand I. John of Castile was the legitimate son of Henry Trastamara, Constance of Castile's illegitimate uncle who had killed her father. John of Castile had married Beatrice of Portugal, Ferdinand's only legitimate surviving child, giving him a claim to the Portuguese throne, not unlike John of Gaunt's claim to the Castilian throne. Prior to leaving for the Iberian Peninsula, John of Gaunt had to do some housekeeping. His second surviving daughter, Elizabeth, had been married in 1380 to John Hastings, the Earl of Pembroke. She was 17, he was eight. So definitely not a love match or probably even a knowing each other match. Elizabeth, as women were at the time, was expected to remain a virgin until her marriage was consummated. The age for men or boys in this case was 14. I'm sure most of us can remember being hormonal teenagers, and we can all agree that both sexes have similar drives. Had Elizabeth been a boy, she could have dealt with her urges by taking a mistress. As long as a man didn't neglect his wife's marital rights, mistresses were normal and expected. But Elizabeth was a girl, and she did not have this luxury. At some point, likely in 1385 or early 1386, she was, as they like to say, seduced by John Holland, Richard II's older half-brother. Yes, the same one who accidentally killed the friar. As often results from seduction, Elizabeth fell pregnant. And her marriage to Hastings was annulled. Poor Hastings would be married again a few years later, before dying at only 17. Elizabeth and Holland were quickly married. He may have been a fun affair partner. He was known for being charming but he was also said to have a vicious temper. They would be married until his death and have six children together. Elizabeth would marry again after his death and have two further children. Her third husband's first name, John. With his daughter's love life sorted out, John of Gaunt could start his war in Castile. He would be taking his three eldest daughters, Philippa, the aforementioned Elizabeth, and Catherine, along with his wife, Constance, with him. John Holland and 5,000 soldiers would be joining them. John of Gaunt should have had an easy time in Castile. His army was much larger and started out better supplied. He would also surprise John of Castile by attacking from northern Spain, the Galicia region, and not Portugal. He was unlucky because John of Castile had learned from the French and employed Charles V's tactics to protect his people and their supplies. John of Gaunt also arrived at the wrong time of year. Summer is not the best time to be attacking on the Iberian Peninsula. While Gaunt's initial attacks went well, slowly disease spread through his camp, and the lack of additional supplies hurt his chances. The Castilians also avoided offering him battle. Plus, the nobility wasn't too keen on a foreign king. He decided to formalize his ongoing relationship with Portugal to gain further support for his ongoing campaign. This agreement would eventually include a marriage. Philippa of Lancaster was John of Gaunt and Blanche's oldest child. She was 26 years old at the start of her father's campaign. It was an older age for an unmarried royal princess, but thankfully that would get taken care of soon. There was one major issue though with her marrying the King of Portugal his oath of celibacy 
And after this message, you'll hear more. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a member of the Order of the House of Aviz, he had taken an oath of chastity and had to get papal dispensation in order to marry. It appears John of Gaunt hadn't been fully informed of how big of an issue this could be before they agreed to things. John of Portugal's membership wasn't a secret, but he may have not been completely forthcoming with his future father-in-law. Philippa and John of Portugal's marriage would produce children known in Portugal as the illustrious generation. Their six surviving children would encourage education and exploration throughout the next generation. I've recently done a collaboration with Cork Out History podcast, specifically on Philippa of Lancaster, John of Gaunt's oldest daughter. So please do listen to that. I'll let you guys know when it comes out on social media. While John and John's campaign had started out well, it eventually disintegrated. With disease and discontent raging through his army and issues between the Portuguese and English troops, John of Gaunt and John of Castile finally reached a truce. Thankfully for John, he had one daughter left. Catherine, his only surviving child with Constance, was married to John of Castile's son and heir, Henry, the future Henry III. Together, Catherine and Henry would be the grandparents of Isabella of Castile, giving her a claim to the English throne after the overthrow of her cousin, Henry VI of England. Not that she would press it. John of Gaunt may have lost a kingdom, but his daughters would be queens. While one was kind of a hostage, it does appear that both their marriages were well-matched. He also got 
a whole lot of money, John of Castile paid his father-in-law an enormously large bribe not to attack his country again. From Spain, John of Gaunt traveled back to Portugal before going to Gascony. He would remain there until November of 1389. For those of you who do know this period well, you will know that this means John of Gaunt was out of England when his youngest brother, Thomas of Woodstock, along with Richard Fitzalan and Thomas de Beaucamp, appealed to the king to impeach five of his counselors. These three would be joined by Henry Bolingbroke, John of Gaunt's son, in the future. These four are known today as the Lord's Appellant, while Richard II would listen to their complaints and dismiss his counselors. He would never forgive these four for their lack of faith and what he perceived as their treason. Richard II also realized during this time why he needed John of Gaunt in England. Had Gaunt been there, it's likely the appellants would have approached him first, especially since Henry and Thomas were his family members. And Gaunt could have helped the king save face while sorting out their differences. With his uncle's return, he was able to rebuild his power base, but he would hold a grudge for a long time. I will address the Lord's Appellant further in Thomas of Woodstock's episode, since he is one of the said appellants. But there is another insult to the royal family that needs to be discussed. Rob de Vere's marriage to Philippa de Cousy, a granddaughter of Edward III through his oldest daughter, Isabella of England, had been formalized in 1376. The bride was only nine and the groom 14. It was a great match for de Vere and likely helped him to become Richard II's favorite. Eleven years later, in 1387, de Vere repudiated his wife for one of Anne of Bohemia's ladies, the aforementioned Agnes de Lons Crona. He was able to secure an annulment. As many of you can imagine, this was seen as insulting to the royal family and made de Vere unpopular with his former uncles-in-law, though not with his BFF, the king. All three royal uncles, Gaunt, Edmund of Langley, and Thomas of Woodstock made their anger clear. De Vere's own mother sided with his ex-wife and kept Philippa in her household. Philippa was able to get her annulment overturned, though her husband did not return. John of Gaunt's return to England in November of 1389 was most welcomed by Richard II. When Gaunt traveled into London in early December of that year, he was greeted on the road by the king. Richard was desperate for his uncle's calming influence. Plus, he wanted his uncle to solve a problem for him. Richard II no longer wanted to be forced to pay homage for Gascony to the French king because it made him subordinate to said king. It had been an ongoing problem for English kings for a while, if you hadn't noticed. The solution was simple. Richard II would invest his uncle as the Duke of Aquitaine. The first time this title had been bestowed on someone who wasn't the King of England or his heir. While this would imply that John of Gaunt was Richard II's heir, we know from Lionel of Antwerp's episode that Richard liked to play politics with appointing an heir and was likely just using his uncle to control the difficult region. From afar, John of Gaunt would run Gascony through his Seychelles, but would return in 1394. His timing was pretty bad. In March of that year, Constance died. She was 40 at the oldest. He arranged a grand service for her funeral. While he may not have been devastated by her death, he treated her well in life and death. He and his oldest son, however, were completely devastated months later when Mary de Bowen, 
Henry Bolingbroke's wife of 13 years died in childbirth. She was 26. From her and Henry, John of Gaunt had four grandsons and two granddaughters. Less than a week after Mary's death, Richard II lost his wife, Anne of Bohemia, to the plague. Anne had been a respected queen and a calming influence on her husband. Her death devastated him. He actually pulled down a palace due to it. A little less than two years after his second wife's death, John of Gaunt married his third wife on the 13th of January, 1396. It was a similar pattern seen with his second marriage, coming two years after the death of his first wife. This marriage, though, was a bit more controversial than the first two, and it was a love match. He married the mother of his four youngest children, Catherine Swinford. Now, he could have had a pragmatic reason to marry his former long-term mistress. It would have allowed their children to be legitimated, which they were. It would be approved by the Pope in 1396 and by Parliament in 1397. When I discuss Margaret Beaufort in this season, I'll discuss this legitimation. And it is a little complicated. Or not complicated at all. In addition to his pragmatic reason, it's likely that John of Gaunt and Catherine had missed each other's romantic company. They had lived apart since the Peasants' Revolt, but still appeared to care for each other. While Catherine Swinford was now the highest-ranked woman in England, as long as her husband was in the room, royal protocol has a lot of rules. It appears that his nieces and sister-in-law were not always kind to her. Chronicler said it was because of her low birth. Remember how much snobbery can be seen in the media about various royal families today. John of Gaunt and Catherine's daughter, Joan Beaufort, would marry Sir Ralph Neville, Earl of Westmoreland, in the year her parents married. Double wedding! Her first marriage had been to a baron, so this was a step up. Through this marriage, Joan would be the mother of Cicely Neville, and through her, the grandmother of Edward IV and Richard III, making the Wars of the Roses a fight between the descendants of John of Gaunt in addition to being a fight between the descendants of Edward III. In 1396, John of Gaunt, Richard, and most of the royal family traveled to France to join the king for his marriage to Isabella of Valois, the nine-year-old daughter of the French king Charles VI. It appears that Charles VI was mentally well at this time, so the wedding went well. I'll discuss Charles VI's mental health issues in a later episode. Try not to think too much about the 20-year age gap. The marriage was never consummated. It was very much a treaty marriage, and the bride's parents approved. Yes, I am a parent, and I do judge them pretty harshly. I'm sure it's great for your daughter to be a queen, but sending your very young child off to a foreign country to marry a man she's only met sounds like a horrible idea. It does appear that no matter how mean Richard was to the men in his family, he was actually very kind to the women in his life. While Richard II should have been celebrating his wedding, he was instead planning revenge against the Lord's Appellant. He kept these plans secret from John of Gaunt, which makes sense on multiple levels. Two of the Appellants were close family members, and John of Gaunt would be in charge of any treason trials held. Richard's solution was just not to hold trials. I do promise I will cover this completely in Thomas of Woodstock's episode, but I want to discuss Henry Brolingbroke's position during this time. In early October 1397, Bolingbroke and Thomas Mowbray ran into each other on a road in Brentford. 
Mowbray shared the accusation that the king and his closest retainers were planning to kill Bolingbroke and Mowbray, despite pardoning them both earlier. Mowbray said the conspirators planned to kill Bolingbroke's half-brother, Thomas Beaufort, who he was very close to, and may have implied that Richard II would have John of Gaunt killed as well. Gaunt and his oldest son were close. Much like his parents, Gaunt had made sure his children had a loving upbringing, even if, you know, there were multiple families combining together. Bolingbroke informed his father as soon as he could after the meeting. John of Gaunt rightly recommended telling the king, and on January of 1389, Bolingbroke did so. Mowbray was incensed and lashed out against Bolingbroke, who responded in kind. Through various schemes and plots, the two were basically duped by the king into agreeing to a duel. It was planned to take place on the 16th of September, 1389. There was a great deal of planning and build-up for the duel. For John of Gaunt, this would have been devastating and challenging. He had been loyal to his nephew for two decades at this point, but he loved his son and heir. Bolingbroke wasn't just his son. It seems as though they were friends. And his son was his future and the father of his beloved grandchildren. The morning of the duel, everything was ready. The public had gathered to watch, just like a normal tournament. The court had gathered as well. There was a lot going on politically. And Richard II was in it all, playing politics. At the last moment, Richard II cancelled the duel, to the dismay of awaiting spectators and probably Bolingbroke, since he was likely to win. He was good at this. Mowbray was punished with eternal exile and would die in Venice a little more than a year later from the plague. We'll hear about him again. Bolingbroke was ordered to be exiled for 10 years. John of Gaunt begged for his son's exile to be reduced. Richard II relented, but only reducing it to six years. Gaunt encouraged his son to seek assistance from the French. Gaunt had been popular in their court. Henry Bolingbroke left England on the 13th of October, 1398. He would never see his father again. Less than six months later, on the 3rd of February, 1399, John of Gaunt died at the age of 58. Catherine Swinford was at his side. The chroniclers at the time forgot to write down his cause of death. No, I'm not joking. Later ones would claim sex, or at least venereal disease, killed him. Remember, most chroniclers were members of the clergy, or didn't like John. Richard II neglected to tell Henry Bolingbroke that his father had died. Don't worry, others did tell him. In theory, John of Gaunt's estates should have passed directly to Henry Bolingbroke. This is what Gaunt had planned, and Richard II had set this up when he made Gaunt's estates and titles palatines. But not long after his father's death, Bolingbroke's exile was made permanent, and Richard II took his titles and lands. As you can imagine, this didn't sit well with Bolingbroke. His cousin, whom his father had done so much for, had pushed things to the point where it was a me versus him situation. This does not end well for Richard II, as most of you will know. By the end of September 1399, he wouldn't be the king. Henry Bolingbroke would, as Henry IV. Bolingbroke returned to England while Richard II was in Ireland. 
Bolingbroke had planned his landing well, starting in the north, where his father had been loved and moving south. By the time he reached London, he had more than 30,000 men with him, ready to fight for his cause. Richard II was captured and surrendered the kingdom. So, the question with this episode, as with all subjects, is, would John of Gaunt have been a better king than the person who was king instead of him? In England, I think we all know the answer. Yes. <laughs> Being a better king than Richard II would have literally taken a, a little bit of empathy. In Spain, possibly. Henry Trastamara and his son, John, seem to have been perfectly adequate rulers for this time. Their treatment of Jews and Muslims was horrible, but sadly the norm for their time, and Gaunt probably wouldn't have done any better. Having Gaunt ruling Spain and Richard II ruling England would have isolated the French and may have led to an English takeover of Western Europe. I don't know if this is a good thing or not, but it would have been different. Finally, Scotland, where Gaunt was suggested to succeed David II. This would have made his great-grandfather, Edward I's wildest dreams come true, but I don't think the Scottish populace would have approved. Robert II, who did succeed his uncle, David II, pushed for continued Scottish independence, but he wasn't a great king. John of Gaunt was a great duke and war leader. He probably would have made a good king, and had he been alive during the time of the Old English, he likely would have been selected as such. I've really enjoyed reading about him and writing this. He's probably one of the more interesting people to have never been king. But it really wasn't in the cards for him. His son and daughters would do that for him. And his descendants rule most of Europe today. Sorry again for the delay on this series of episodes. And thank you for your understanding. Next week, Edmund of Langley, the also sometimes forgotten son of Edward III. And in two weeks' time, I'll be releasing my first collaboration. This is with Cork Out History Podcast, a podcast about Portuguese history. Inej, Andre, and I will be discussing Philippa of Lancaster, John of Gaunt's oldest daughter, who married John I of Portugal as part of a peace treaty to help John of Gaunt win Castile. We all know how well that campaign went. Philippa's marriage, though, went much better than her father's Spanish campaigns. I hope you'll join me for that. The first episode of that two-part episode will be on this channel, and the second half will be on Cork Out History's podcast. So do check out their show before you listen to it. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.